Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Risk and Reels. I am your host, Jeffrey Wheatman, and I am proud and excited to have my guest, Matt Stamper, on today. Matt and I have known each other for, oh my God, six or seven years. Um, we work together at Gartner. Uh, Matt is currently the CEO of Executive Advisors Group. He is also one of the authors of the CISO Desk Reference Guides and the Data Privacy Program Guide, which are excellent, excellent books that talk about being a CISO and protecting our data. So welcome, Matt. Nice to see you, brother. It is so good. This is like uh, deja vu all over again. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me on the uh, podcast. All right, deja vu. So that means there's a glitch in the matrix. So we have to be <laughs> we have to be mindful of that. Looking for the black cat going up the stairs. So, exactly. um, so, so just so everyone knows, uh, I am in Southern Florida, and Matt is very, very, very far away. You may be able to tell by his shirt that he is in Hawaii on vacation, exactly. which is something yep. we don't always get to do in security. Uh, all right, so let's let's jump in, my friend. Um, so as we always do on Risk and Reels, we always start out talking about movies. So what do I want to hear your thoughts on that? Let's talk about romantic comedies. What is your favorite rom-com of all time, Matt? It, it's going to sound a little bit odd, but I just love Forrest Gump. I, I love the true love that he had. Um, I love the way the story kind of shows an individual life and how it pans out and, and all the kind of interesting uh, historical montages that surface in Forrest Gump. I just think it's one of the classic films that are out there. Uh, lately, I haven't seen a whole lot of movies because cybersecurity is so uh, inclusive. I mean, you're, you're, you're constantly enmeshed in everything cyber. So I haven't seen a whole lot recently, but, but I always love Forrest Gump. That and Patton, but Patton doesn't qualify as a rom-com. <laughs> um no maybe romantic but probably not much of a of a of a comedy so i i'm also a big forrest gump fan i think it's gotten like a it's gotten like a little kind of cool to dislike forrest gump recently um mm -hmm. and and i i'm i believe that you have to sort of look at those things in the time they were made at the time it was great and some of the technology they used was incredible to to be able to get you know, Forrest in with Kennedy and Nixon and, and all those things. And, you know, now with deep fakes, and we can talk about that because I think that's an interesting topic. Yep. But I think, you know, I think people take that stuff for granted, right? So, so I'll share. So my, my favorite rom-com is When Harry Met Sally for, for a wide variety of reasons. Um, but I think one, one of the best scenes is the scene that takes place in Katz's Deli. Um, and if you ever go to Katz's Deli in New York City, which is an amazing place if you want to get pastrami, they actually have a sign hanging over the table where Harry and, and Sally met. And a little little trivia that not everyone knows, the the woman who says, I'll have what she's having after Meg Ryan does her little fake thing is actually director Rob Reiner's mother. So a lot of people it. don't 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 know that. So um so I think you know, Forrest Gump, I think, actually gives us a, a really good uh, transition. The, the joke that we always had when you and I worked together at Gartner, you and Sam and I, um, your answer to every problem was threat modeling. Threat modeling, right? of course. Why and, wouldn't it and be? I think, yeah, I think that's a great sort of transition, though, because think of all the the 
risks that Forrest took in his life, right? That all led to these amazing things. And, you know, his personality and, and his, his sort of, um, approach to life. He never really thought about that, right? He got lucky in a lot of cases because a lot of the things he did could have ended terribly, right? So he didn't really do a lot of risk assessment. He didn't really do a, a lot of threat modeling. And, and as you and I have talked about, you know, many times within the area of third-party risk management, which obviously is what we do at Black Kite, and, and you and I have talked about it many times, I think people sometimes maybe look too high up the stack, too much at the risk and not enough really at the at the threat. So before we started uh, recording, you kind of shared a little bit of how you got into threat modeling. So I think that that might be interesting. Let's start there. So what got you sort of on the threat modeling bandwagon to begin with? In in uh, in the spirit of a shameless plug for someone else's book, Adam Shostak's book, Threat Modeling, Designing for Security, uh, remains a classic. I think it's something that everybody should read. And, and what, what struck me was just the commonsensical nature of the methodology. When you do a stride analysis, you're looking at how identities are spoofed, how information would be tampered with, how transactions would be repudiated, how you would have information disclosure, deny services, or, or elevate privileges. All these negative attributes, if you will. It's a simple way to look at something. Uh, effectively, you're always asking, what is it that I don't know that I should know about a service, about a vendor, about a component, about a supply chain, about an application, about whatever the case may be, a proposed business strategy. And you're asking some of those what if questions and you're trying to evaluate the risk. And, and I think Jeffrey, I'm preaching to the choir. When we, when we think about risk in our profession, there's a tendency to look at how do we eliminate risk? And our job is never to eliminate risk. Our job is to look for good risk to effectively take. There's no reward without risk. You know, organizations can exist these days without supply chains, without good, high-quality third-party vendors. But we need to assess their risk. We need to understand their risk profile. And there's tools that we can do that facilitate that. Doing a simple uh, threat model, doing dependency analyses, doing things as simple as a BIA. In my book, I talk a lot about how important business impact uh, analyses are, but too many organizations don't really do those. And I think they don't do them in the same way that they don't do threat models or other types of, of risk assessments or analyses because they're viewed as overly complicated and they don't need to be. They can be a water cooler discussion. You and I just talking about a subject will help us think and frame risk differently than if we weren't having those discussions. And so the discussion ends up being almost as important as the functional assessment or the functional tool doing the analysis. So there was a lot there to un unpack and I agree with, with a lot of it. I think the BIA is one that I want to kind of pull out because I don't know if you remember, but you had a deck you created when we worked together at Gartner about yep. using a BIA to drive privacy and to drive security and to drive risk. And, and I think that is a huge benefit that I don't think people avail themselves of, right? Most organizations have some kind of a continuity resiliency plan. And the only way for those to be useful is if you've done some kind of an analysis of, of interaction and, you know, how bad would it be if this system went away, right? To just put it really, really yeah. simply. And I feel like that, you're right. I think it's underutilized, not just in continuity, but I think to be able to leverage that, and granted, it's focusing on availability and not as much on 
on data and, and integrity and things like that. But I think it's really, really important. And that's the kind of conversation that it's easier to get your business stakeholders engaged in. If you go and say, so tell me what your cybersecurity goals and objectives are for this system, they go, get out of here. But if you say, hey, how bad would it be if this system fell over or in the, in the construct of third-party vendor risk, how bad would it be if this, if this company went away? Um, one of the questions we run into when we talk to people all the time, and we used to see this at Gartner, you know, not all of your partners are the same. They're not all equal, right? To, to badly misquote Animal Farm by George Orwell, all partners are equal, but some partners are more equal than others. And I think that the ability to look at those, you know, how bad would it be if they went away? And we see this in ransomware, right? I always ask people, what would happen if your number one partner got hit with ransomware and they were down for a week? How long would you be down for? And the answer is always longer than a week, right? Mm -hmm. So bringing that back to the whole threat modeling discussion and looking at all these things and, and thinking about the unknown unknowns, right? Exactly. So how do you, for, for, for someone who's listening, who's never done a, a threat modeling exercise what are what are sort of the steps that you would take them through from kind of you know one to Z? I, I think at at the highest level is just using the stride moniker as a way to to look at that. So you're looking at inherent weaknesses within the application, within the service. Let me let me stop you. Stride for those those that may not know what is the stride model. So STRIDE effectively stands for all the negative things that could happen, spoofing of identities, tampering with transactions, or excuse me, tampering with data, repudiating transactions, having information disclosed, denial of services or elevation of privileges. So STRIDE is a way to look at kind of these negative um, outcomes. And then you just ask good open-ended questions do we have appropriate mitigations? Do we have an appropriate level of, of control or understanding or governance to preclude identities being compromised in the case of spoofing? Do I have good integrity controls in the case of um, you know, tampering with the data? Do I have the ability to do non-repudiation with transactions, those sorts of things? So I think Stride, in, in addition to doing kind of the, the threat model and the complement with the BIA, is fundamentally about dependency analyses. Do I have any types of dependencies that I need to be aware of as I'm looking to this particular business outcome, this particular business service? And, and one of the reasons why I think BIAs are so critical is the first letter of that acronym. It's business. It's not about cybersecurity. You know, it's not about the newest technology. It's fundamentally, what are the business impacts to our organization? Again, what is it that I don't know that I should know that could impact my organization's to my organization's ability to deliver a service, to be resilient, to be able to address some of the challenges that we're frankly seeing. In fact, in in your firm's uh, 2023 analysis, one of the things on on kind of vendor risk management, one of the things that really hit like a ton of bricks is this multiplier effect, these systemic risks that if you have a particular component or supplier. Um, those impacts tend to be a lot more pervasive than we realize. And, and so I think one of the things that we're seeing bluntly is when CISOs or risk officers or other individuals are looking at their supply chain and their vendor risk profiles, there's a hell of a lot that we don't know. 
we, we really don't understand the level of risk that our organizations are subject to. And so some of these tools- Well, let me ask you a question though. Do we, why don't we know? I, I you would because think it would be pretty straightforward, right? I do business with this company and they provide yeah. this service. And if that service goes away, I can't make money, save money, or find someone to blame if something goes sideways. So why yeah. don't people know? It seems like you would have to. I, I, you're preaching to the choir. It, it's, it is certainly knowable, but I think there is definitely, um, one, there's a volumetric issue. And let's, let's be very honest about that. A large organization is going to have a vendor master file that numbers in the thousands, potentially seven, eight, nine, ten thousand vendors. Determining which of those vendors are material to operations that are material to any number of corporate directives or enterprise risk considerations, that's, that's difficult detailed governance work that needs to be done. Then we've got the problem with the tooling, frankly, on how we look at risk traditionally. We've had kind of the proverbial SOC 2 type 2 audit. As a CISO, there's no way in hell I would ever allow that level of assurance to really guide how I look at things. But I don't have in many cases up until recently really good tools to make better decisions. So we end up relying on a SOC 2 type 2 audit how many of those have you read that have had a disclaimed opinion or deficiencies that are material? You know, they all kind of read, you know, reasonable assurance, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a challenge there. Then we also have the, the dynamics. And I just completed one of these uh, last week, a, a 600 question SIG uh, for, for a customer of mine that I'm helping out with. And realistically, the risk profile of the organization was inherently low, but the number of questions that were related to it, which took hours and hours and hours to complete, were asymmetric. So, so we've got really imprecise tools historically. And I think one of the things that we're seeing is this transformational moment around how we're looking at third-party risk, how we're looking at vendor risk and supply chain risk. And there's recognition Clearly, with some of the issues, Log4j, the solar winds issues at all, uh, a number of the MSPs that are being compromised that have, um, you know, high privilege access into our environments. Uh, we're seeing that historically the tools we had are insufficient to deal with the type of risk that we're confronting uh, today. And so I think CISOs are sitting here going, okay, we got to take pause. We need to start looking at these things with fresh approaches, thinking new ways to, to look at third party and vendor risk. So you said a couple of things there that I really like. So the, the first one is you sort of went supply chain risk, third party risk, vendor risk, not in that order. That's yeah. something that I've been talking about for a long time. I mean, you know, we work together at Gartner and one of the things Gartner yeah. does is they have to define everything. And, and please, mm -hmm. my Gartner friends, don't get mad at me. But <laughs> I always said, look, why are we defining things? Nobody else cares. They have problems they need to solve. And I've been talking about this concept called extended ecosystem risk or digital yeah. ecosystem risk. At the end of the day, third party, supply chain, vendor, whatever, you're absorbing risk because of someone you do business with, right? Exactly. So, so I think that's an interesting one. And then the other thing that you really you hit on there was the the concept really of the sort of cascading issue, right? Which is we yeah. have partners, they have partners, they have partners. And I think that's one, I think that's an area where people really struggle, right? Um, mm -hmm. There was an incident back in December. Uh, so I always ask people, 
have you ever heard of a company called Seven Rooms? People say, well, no. Well, they had a breach in December. They are one of the biggest CRMs in hospitality and restaurants. They lost, I don't know, it was 400 gigabytes worth of data. But here's the interesting thing. They didn't actually lose the data. They partner with another company that does data transfer. That company got breached. Seven Rooms absorbed that risk, and then they turned it on to all of the companies that they do business with. And when I stumbled across that, I actually wrote a blog on it. I couldn't even find the name of that third-party data transfer company. Yeah. So I go and I stay in a hotel, right? That hotel has my data. They put it up in seven rooms because that's how they run their business. And all of a sudden, my data is out there. Why? Because a company I never heard of that I did not choose to do business with didn't yep. do what they were supposed to do. Exactly. Right? That, that and I think that's part of the complexity you talked about. It, it, you, you bring up a perfect dynamic. When I was an analyst at Gartner, I did a lot of uh, tabletop exercises and, and kind of built workbooks to, to facilitate those. And one of the topics that I had was effectively, how do you handle a security incident where it's your data, but it's the third party who's been compromised and now your data is being exposed? And realistically, that is becoming a much more common type of scenario but most organizations, when they start thinking through their incident response programs, they're not modeling in or contemplating some of those dependencies that they have on these third parties and their third level and fourth level dependencies. So my providers, providers, provider, in this case, that you know underlying transport company ends up being the, the weakest link in that chain. And as a consequence, your data, Jeffrey, is now available. By the way, it was a great read. No. <laughs> yes, indeed. I, I, um, I, yeah, I think it, it's a huge issue and I think it's actually going to get worse. Um, yeah. you know, we, we talk to people all the time about, you know what, Google's probably doing a better job in security than most companies, Microsoft, Rackspace, mm-hmm. uh, Amazon, right? But for every vertical, there's a whole suite of tools of smaller companies that probably don't have SOC 2s because they can't afford it. They don't yeah. have, you know, certificates. They don't do a great, not that they don't do a great job, but they're running a business. They can't spend half their revenue on, on, on doing these assessments. And I mean, you remember years back when you'd go to your SaaS provider and say, so tell me what you do for security. And they give you a SOC 2. And you go, well, is this yours? Oh no, it's Amazon's. Exactly. Right, well, yeah. That doesn't tell me anything about your application development process or how you're doing credential management or whether you have MFA deployed. Um, any thoughts on how we, I'm not going to ask you how to solve it because I don't think there is a solution, but how do we move in that direction? How do we get people more visibility other than buying Black Kite, of course, but how do, how do we get people to, to move in that direction? So, so like, how do we hold people accountable? Yeah, I, I think there's a number of, of a number of factors that in the ultimate are going to move the needle. Um, so one is that we have the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission has got proposed rules that are likely to come into force uh, in March or April or sometime relatively mm-hmm. early this year, where there's going to be a requirement for greater disclosure around cybersecurity risks, systemic risks, things of that nature. 
As part of that effort, um, there's a gentleman named Bob Zukas that runs a digital directors network, and he's focused on getting qualified uh, technology experts on boards of directors. So there's a visibility at the executive and C-suite and board level around this digital risk, that pervasive digital risk that you've you've discussed frequently, you know, both here and, and elsewhere, that I think is really critical. There's another thing that I think is, is going to change the dynamics. So that visibility is one. I think we're having greater visibility thanks to tools like yours that are, that are providing more insights into kind of the inherent risk within our vendor and supply chain. There's also a legal issue here. If you were to go through and you read most software licensing agreements, there's limitations of liability and disclaimers of warranty. The problem is, is that we're starting to connect IP networks with operational technology and we can start to change the physical role. You know, we can close a valve that should be open. We can open a valve that should be closed. And effectively, you have issues now related to safety. So one of the things that I think we do really well in this country is we tend to sue people. You know, this is a very litigious society in the U.S. Um, you start to see scenarios in healthcare and elsewhere where known cybersecurity issues that should have been addressed weren't in the consequence of which is that an individual is harmed, you know, or potentially up to and including somebody dying because of poor security configurations, poor code practices, things of that nature. I start to question how long that ability for the software industry to avoid being liable for some of the poor code that is out there will remain. So I think there's some of those large um, kind of glacial type movements, but they're happening, are going to change awareness. And then I think the other dynamic clearly, um, and this one's a little bit more, more frustrating, but it just is what it is, is the geopolitical side of these things. You know, we've been talking for a very long time how nation states are actually going in, stealing intellectual property, weaponizing third-party tools, going in and, and doing a number of different things that harm U.S. critical infrastructure, that harm intellectual property, that undermine uh, our nation's ability to compete and, and derive economic value. So I think there's a huge confluence of issues that are raising the issue of cybersecurity with the board, with the executive leadership team, and it's starting to couple with better tooling, better telemetry to have more risk-informed decisions. So I'm actually optimistic, despite all those negative things, that you know one of the biggest issues is you know what is it that I don't see that I should see? Well, now you know we've got a lot better visibility on third-party risk, on supply chain risk, on with software bill of materials, with the code that we run. We've got really good standards. Um, that are out there, like the Open Web Application Security Projects, Application Security Verification Standard, OWASP, ASVS. That's a straightforward, simple way to look at designing good, secure code. Use it. You know, the, the cybersecurity framework from NIST, use it. You know, these are things that I think in the aggregate start to move the needle and ideally make our organizations more, resil more resilient. Those, they'll certainly never be perfectly secure, but ideally more resilient when they confront these types of risks. Yeah, so I agree. And, and you know, you brought up the SEC uh, regulation. So I don't know when this is going to air, so it, it may actually be out by then. But we've started to hear a lot more about that. And, and I think you hit on an interesting thing, which is getting more security people on boards. The problem we have seen, the problem I've seen is that 
you can't just put technical people on the boards because they need to understand the business piece. And business, unfortunately, exactly. there, there's not a huge amount of people who who cross that over. And, and I think that's going to be a little bit of a challenge. I mean, I, I was at an event in New York right before COVID and they had five board members on stage talking about cyber. And I asked them what I thought was a pretty simple question. If your CISO comes to you or your CIO or your CRO and they tell you things you don't understand or don't care about, are you providing that feedback to them? And all of them scratch their head and said, no, but we should, right? So yeah. that's the problem is the security guys go in there, security ladies go in there. They tell a story, good story, bad story. We don't know. They think they're being heard. The board thinks they understand. And they go their separate ways. And in six months, that poor CISO comes back and says, hey, look at all the cool stuff we did. And the board says, well, why'd you do that? Right? Mm -hmm. So that's something that, that we want to be mindful of. And then the other one that we've started hearing a lot more about is DORA out of the EU. DORA has a specific section on third-party risk, and we're, we're actually looking for a DORA expert for a future episode. Uh, it's so new there. We don't really see a lot of them out there. But you know, from, from that dependency perspective, and, and again, I don't know when this is going to air, but not too long ago, there was a situation where there was a company that provides an options trading platform out of the UK. Well, they got hit with ransomware, and they were down for, I think, eight days is what it ended up. And ABN AMRO had to shut down their options trading desk and a very large bank in Spain uh, also had to shut down. And I guarantee you, no one on the board for those companies had any idea that that dependency was there. Yeah. And yet, exactly. I mean, you know, right? Millions of dollars, pounds, euros are traded in options every day. And they had to yep. shut that thing down. So uh, it's... Uh, yeah, it's just um, I'm not quite as optimistic as you are, to be frank. Um, I think I think the level of complexity is growing faster than our ability yeah. to to have that level of visibility. And visibility is something you said a few minutes ago, and I think that that may be the biggest problem is is that lack of of visibility. I mean, we have customers who are using our platform to manage. 40, 50, 60, 70, 80,000 entities is, is our biggest client. And even if you can do that, what do you do with that information, right? I, I was actually talking with a guy earlier today. You know, you and I, I know we've had this conversation, right? The difference between data and information. Well, I've now added sort of another layer on top of that, right? Data is good. Information's better. Intelligence is the best yep. because intelligence exactly. drives decisions. And, and and I think that's I just I think we're far away. I I always feel like we're not moving as fast as we think we're moving, and I just feel like the the bad guys are ahead of us. I mean, you you yeah, talked yeah. about our third party risk report, and one of the data points that I thought was interesting is we saw less third party breaches, but they impacted more first parties. And the impact, the financial impact was twice what it was, it was the year before. Exactly. It speaks, Jeffrey, to you? your point. The bad guys are getting smarter. Yeah. And it, and it speaks to the critical, uh, critical role of dependency analysis and systemic risk that we face. You know, we are facing broad strokes of different systemic risk. I had a discussion um, uh, Bill Bonney, one of the co-authors of the CISO Desk Reference Guide, along with Gary Hayslip, he and I were talking yesterday about, quote unquote, black swan events, and they're common. 
it's almost as though we're witnessing the death of the black swan. It's just now a swan. You know, they're out there. They're happening frequently. Um, and the, you know, kind of the novel technique that we saw a couple of years ago is now the day to day today. And I think one of the interesting dynamics, I know it's, it's a lot of buzz right now, but chat GPT uh, and everything from open AI and all these other tools. But, you know, there's, there's some interesting articles afoot right now where you can use these tools to create malware that bypasses endpoint detection and response type tools. So it is an arms race without a shadow of a doubt. I think the critical thing is, is you're trying to reduce that aperture of risk, you know, where the organization, you know, can, can effectively be hit with that type of risk and still be relatively resilient. That has huge implications around the quality of your supply chain, the quality of the vendors, the quality of the due diligence you do around them. And then internally, the quality of your enterprise architecture. Is it designed for failure? You know, do you have fault tolerance and redundancy built into it, whether it's at a component level or a business process level or a vendor or supplier uh, level? And, and we're seeing just so much risk hitting organizations today that, again, going back to the optimistic side of it, what's good is that the issue of risk is so front and center with executive leadership teams. You know, they've dealt with supply chain crises. They've dealt with a global pandemic. They're dealing with some really significant geopolitical issues now. Um, there's a lot there that is driving better decision. Going back, Jeffrey, to one of the things that you mentioned as a CISO um, in, in my organization, it's incumbent upon me to translate digital risk into business impact. You know, CISOs have to speak enterprise risk management. They have to know ERM. If they're not really well-versed in ERM methodology, if they're not understanding of, of what reputational risk and financial and operational and regulatory risks are, they're effectively not serving their organization or their security programs very well. And I think most CISOs now are really ramping up their skill base. They're able to communicate digital and complex kind of technical risk into business impact. And where they don't, there's a number of mechanisms out there that allow them. One of the things I do is I do uh, a little bit of kind of sidebar discussions, almost akin to the inquiries we used to do at, at Gartner, but kind of mentorship and just, you know, discussions with other CISOs around how to communicate these things to, to boards of directors and their executive leadership team. It's, it's a critical skill that I think all of us need to improve. Yeah, I had a conversation with somebody a couple weeks ago about sort of ERM and what their role is, and, and they articulated it in an interesting way, which I think is actually true. The person that runs ERM needs to know a little bit about a lot, but they don't own any of it, right? Yeah. So it's very, very hard to roll that stuff up to the board level, but to your point, one of the requirements out of the SEC regulation is the boards need to be able to articulate material risk because of cyber. And yes. I've spoken with a lot of boards, and I'm not sure most of them know how to express the you know what what those material risks are. You know the yeah. the simple example that and it's dated, but I use it all the time, right? Society General got hit with a very bad fraud. There was a trader. He lost billions of dollars for them. That was largely attributed to the fact that they didn't deprovision him when he changed jobs and he was checking his own trades, right? So you say, well, yeah. IT risk, cyber, but 
three or four billion dollars. That's a big number because someone forgot to took his right take his rights away. And that's it's, the it's, stuff that scares me. You you hit on something that I think is so critical. The governance model. You know, you think about a racy matrix. Who's responsible for the actual functional task? Who's accountable? Who owns that risk? Who ultimately is consulted and informed? Unfortunately, for vendor risk, supply chain risk, cyber risk, a number of technical risks, those governance models are frankly very immature. One of the things I talk about in my book is, quote, declaring war on ambiguity. There should be zero ambiguity within a corporate, uh, a corporate structure who owns certain types of risk. But the reality is, is that it's an inordinately ambiguous environment right now. You know, is supply chain and vendor risk owned by the CFO because she controls the corporation's finances? Is it owned by the CIO? Is it owned by the line of business that owns it? What's the governance model related to that? So you've got kind of a, a telemetry issue. Do we even understand the risk factors and considerations in these really massive vendor and supply chain environments that we operate in? And then flip it over on the governance side. Do I hold Jeffrey Wheatman accountable? Do I hold Matt Stamper accountable? Don't hold me. I didn't do anything. Yeah, I, we're, we're putting it on Sam. So Sam Oliaia is ultimately accountable <laughs> for all vendor risk management I'm for sure. every organization. I'm sure we'll be happy to hear that. Exactly. Um, you know, so, so what I love we'll that, that to war and ambiguity. I love that term. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. You talk about the ownership and that's something that we, we've we started to see more and more of. I, I did a webinar a few months ago with the ITGRC forum and they asked us for a, a polling question. So the polling question I asked was, who in your organization is ultimately accountable for the cybersecurity aspect of your supply chain? And about 50% mm -hmm. of the respondents said the CISO. Um, some people said ERM, some people said the CIO, a couple of people didn't know, which always scares the crap out of me. But then I asked a follow-up question. So for you CISOs out there that said you own it, do you get to say no? And none of them could. So you're telling me you own that and you don't get to stop it if it's no good. Yeah. Or you right? don't have visibility. Think about all the vendors that have been onboarded without any due diligence, any, any type of review, analysis, whatever the case may be. So, yeah. Well, the good thing it, is we're seeing, we're seeing changes there in that yeah. cybersecurity is getting involved in the onboarding. They're getting involved in mergers and acquisitions. So that's definitely something that, that we're seeing. We're seeing yeah. some changes. So, all right, I, I Matt. You know, oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, when you, when you look at a, a small number of quintessential challenges that our profession faces, so there's a handful. Identity governance, that remains difficult, like that joiners, movers, leavers scenario uh, that you describe, where an individual's permissions or entitlements weren't changed. Vulnerability and patch management, that's never going to be fun. It's always going to be a challenge. Vendor and supply chain risk, that is always going to be an underbelly until we start resourcing that correctly, we start tooling it correctly, and we start implementing appropriate governance models related to it so that line of business, CIO and CISO are not conflicted around onboarding a vendor, but they're fully informed about the risk decisions that the organization is making. This is, I think, something that's really critical is, is the CISO role in my view, is all about a fact pattern. Here's the risk that we carry within our vendor and supply chain environment. This is the risk kind of inherently that we have. What do you as the business 
want to do with that risk? Is this risk that we accept? Are we going to mitigate it? Are we going to make modifications or changes to it? But I want to make sure that you have that fact pattern. That's really, I think, the critical next step is, is changing the telemetry and tooling that we have as we start looking at supply chain and third-party risk management. Right. And, and, then, and then providing the executives that actually own it with the information so they can make better decisions. Exactly. You know, we talk about defensibility. Exactly. So, all right, Matt, we are running low on time. You and I could talk for hours. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us on Risk and Reels. Let me just kind of recap. So um, Matt's favorite romantic comedy is Patton. Oh, no, sorry, Forrest Gump. <laughs> Right. Um, yep. And I agree. Katz's uh, Delicatessen has the best pastrami, at least on the East Coast. I, I can't speak for the West Coast where, where you are. Um, threat modeling solves everybody's problems. Right. Is yep. that an overstatement? Maybe a little bit of an overstatement. Nope. Um, Not at all. Stride, Stride is an acronym that everyone should understand. And let's declare war on ambiguity. Any closing thoughts, Absolutely. Matt? Absolutely. Just, you know, I want to thank you and I, I want to thank kind of the broader community for this work, because one thing that I think is, is we are absolutely stronger together and we're dealing with really serious issues. And, and I appreciate venues like this to be able to kind of talk shop and, and everything. So just inordinately grateful for you, Jeffrey, and, and the Black Kite team for having an opportunity to uh, give my proverbial two cents into the community at large, especially within the CISO community, that um, if we don't collaborate, we're we're going to lose. We have to collaborate. Don't, don't sell yourself short, Matt. It was worth at least seven cents. So I appreciate <laughs> it. Again, uh, thanks to our guest, Matt Stamper. Uh, I am Jeffrey Wheatman, your host for Risk and Reels. I want to thank you for joining us. It's been a great session as usual. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy, stay secure. Wheatman out. Thank you for listening to Risk and Reels, a cybersecurity podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to riveting 30-minute conversation about movies and cybersecurity. Jeffrey will be on the road this year at some of the industry's biggest events, but you can always find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Jeffrey Wheatman. This podcast is powered by Blackkite, the only security rating service to deliver the highest quality intelligence to help organizations make better risk decisions.